Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Ephesians chapter 4, we're continuing a series of sorts on the church, and tonight we'll be looking in particular at Ephesians chapter 4. I want to begin by reading the chapter together before we begin to uh, look at it together. Oh, it's on now. Is it on? It says it's on back here. Ephesians chapter 4 in your Bibles. It's not on? I think this one's on. This one looks like it needs new batteries is what it looks like. Maybe it's been too close to whatever that invention Matt Barfield had, and uh, now we don't have batteries in it. Ephesians chapter 4, as they're coming down here, I'm going to try to open that. That is quite something. All right. We'll start reading um, from beginning in verse 1. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith... Uh, when, where, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up, there's the battery, when he ascended up on high, he led the captivity captive and gave gifts unto all men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into lower parts of the earth? He that descended into the same also ascended up far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every weight of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things which is the head, even Christ." from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness and greediness, but you have not so learned Christ, and so be ye heard of him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus Christ, that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitfulness of flesh, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, Putting away lying, speaking every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. I'd like us to stop right there and focus our attention in verse 25, where we read that passage where it says, Wherefore, uh, put away lying and speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let me explain to you how I arrive in these verses. It's not uncommon for people to talk about the great, we could say, potential of a particular church. And I don't think that they do so out of any sense of flattery or pride as it comes to the inside, but simply a recognition 
that that church could do some amazing things. And as that church has studied scriptures, they have hopefully come to some scriptural conclusions. And those scriptural conclusions can be the basis on which many and maybe people inside or outside the church could say, well, that church has incredible potential. And imagine what they could do. And you just look at the young people and look at the teenagers and look what could happen there. We've all been encouraged to be ready to move in the effectiveness of a body. But all of the potential that is part of a church, while good and godly, is only potential if it is God-given potential. None of us dreamt of it on our own, dragged it in, and produced it. All potential, all real potential, is only God's potential. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, it reminds us that God has sovereignly chosen to give to each church particular gifts and giftedness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it reminds us that there are those who plant and there are those who water, but only God gives the increase. So we can speak of potential, but only God is the one who makes things happen. And we understand that, even, I think, when we say, perhaps not even out of a sense of flattery, there's immense potential in that ministry. But at the same time, if you're honest, you come to discover that church history is littered with examples of churches that had all kinds of potential that eventually amounted to very little for God. And despite the fact that at one point they were marked by great potential, significant godliness, a clear delineation of purpose, and a zealous desire to do their best. And the fact is that that is true in both biblical history and in 21st century history. As you know, I'm from New England, and New England has a great tapestry of beautiful church buildings. In fact, more recently, just a couple weeks ago, I was preaching at the Wilds of New England and drove past some beautiful old country church buildings. And to me, that was welcoming. You know, you th- see those, it reminds me of my youth and where we grew up. But in reality, many of those church buildings are either empty in the sense on the inside, like totally empty and really just a picture, a postcard thing, or if they still are utilized, they are not really truly preaching the gospel at all. In fact, the one particular church, which had been built in the 1800s, located not too far from the wilds of New England, when we drove past it, on the outside of it, the whole church was just decorated. It's like an old New England church, if you can imagine this in your eye, a whole New England church decorated all around with rainbow flags. You think, that's, a, that's an incredible kind of transformation to go from this church that was built for that to where they are right now. And so at once... What should be to me as a New Englander welcoming, this is New England, look what it looks like, it really doesn't become welcoming anymore, it becomes more warning. This was, and I don't know their full history, but I imagine at one point this could have been a church that had a clear delineation of purpose, a zealous desire to do good, and was built and erected in that community to be a zealous example for what a church should be, even the kind of church we talked about last night. What happened? How is it that there was a church that had incredible potential and all of a sudden they went careening off the end? What I want us to look at in Ephesians chapter 4 is quite simply, how do you destroy, it's not a good question to ask, but how do you destroy any church's potential? And there are certainly many things that need to be carefully avoided. And my job tonight is not to necessarily be the light, but instead just to turn the light on, if you will, using the New England analogy, like a lighthouse, and shine it on the rocks below 
What could be the rocks that would cause a church to crash and eventually sink? And if we fail to observe the warning signs, we too could be problematic. And the degree to which we think this can't happen in our church is a grave position to be in. Christ's words to the church in Thyatira are very important in that regard. In Revelation 2 verse 9 it says, I know your works, remember this, and your charity and your service and your faith and your patience. Pretty good start. That's a great start. It's a powerful statement. Wonderful potential. But then the next verse, notwithstanding, I have a few things against you. Now, in the case of the church of Thyatira, it was the presence of an individual who was leading the church into immorality. But we're not in Revelation chapter 2, are we? We're in Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians chapter 4, we have a list of warnings. And this list is clearly not exhaustive. There are other things that could contribute to the downfall of a local church. But to the degree that which these things are tolerated, our effectiveness as a church will be diminished. And none of these things will necessarily surprise you, but they should be cause for reflection. And this message is not meant just to look at, but to motivate. It's a warning type message. If you don't want your church to be selling carpets in the next century, pay attention to the warning signs in Ephesians chapter 4. Again, there's Revelation 2, verse 19, and Revelation 2, verse 20. I have a few things against thee. How do you destroy a church's potential? Destroy these pitfalls that Ephesians 4 shines a light on, or these pitfalls will destroy your church. And my plan, as always, is to stay in one passage and stay there we will, and look at the warning signs from Ephesians chapter 4. And the first warning is this. If you want to make sure your church doesn't get destroyed, warning number one, don't tolerate untruthful speech. The potential of any church will be stopped by the toleration of untruthful speech. Notice verse 25. Wherefore, remember, we read the fuller context. Let me review just for a moment. This is in the context of which he's writing and saying, I've given you these gifts to the church. It's clearly given to a local body. And he says, wherefore, because of all the gifts and the apostles and the teachers that you have to build up the body of believers, be careful, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. And the negative element of this is clear, and there's a positive element as well. Negatively, put away lying. Stop that. And positively, speak truth. The best way to kill a lie is by telling the truth and to determine to be truth tellers. Children need to form it in their character. Teenagers need to work hard to ensure it in every part of their lives. Husbands and wives need to maintain it in their relationships with one another. And churches are held together by a commitment to truth. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that when we take the collective armor in the struggle for spiritual warfare, at the very center of that armor, as if to hold it together, is the belt of truth. Lay aside the belt of truth and everything else flaps in the wind. You want to make sure that you have a strong church? Start by being truth, which is a deliberate effort. We may never teach our children to tell lies, but they do tell lies, don't they? They are born sinners. And so there's a negative. Don't do that, but there's also a positive. Because lies, frankly, lies come naturally, but the truth comes supernaturally. 
It's not normal to tell the truth. It's abnormal. And that is why the work of redemption the Lord Jesus Christ does in a person's life ought to turn a person upside down, inside out, that they no longer tolerate untruthful speech. Now, there is nowhere, perhaps, that this danger zone is more obvious in the church than in the realm of rumor. People who have fueled and fed upon rumors are a small and suspicious people, and there are many of them. People magazines and magazines that surround you as you leave the store are interested in selling you rumor and garbage. It doesn't matter necessarily if it's true, as long as it's interesting. And that's certainly true even in the foyers of the church. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln's coffin was opened twice after he died? Two different times. The first time Lincoln's coffin was opened was 1887, which was 22 years after his assassination. You may ask, why in the world did they open Abraham Lincoln's coffin 22 years later? Well, they did it because of a rumor which had swept the country that Lincoln was not in his coffin, that he had never been in his coffin, and whether he had been in his coffin was just conjecture, and somehow or another, it got such a swell in the country that they had to exhume the body, open it up, and say, there he is. It happened again. 14 years later, the same rumor swept the country again, and once again, they had to exhume the body and open it up and say, there he is, and put him back down. I bring that up because rumor really is a monstrous giant capable of prying open more coffins and revealing more skeletons unnecessarily than almost any other thing in the church. A passing word, an unkind statement, an unguarded notion, a less than truthful assertion, and suddenly the giant roams through the graveyards of our past, digging up coffins and revealing the existence of skeletons to the detriment of the church. I say to you on the authority of God's word, want to ruin your church? Tolerate untruthful speech. Nowhere will this be more apparent than in the cultivation of, communication of, and carrying through with juicy little rumors in the corridors. You go to bed with a giant of rumor and it'll roll over and crush you in the night. Destroy that kind of speech, or that kind of speech will destroy your church. Wrong silences, unfound stories, deliberate lies cause trouble, friction, disunity, sadness. Brothers call bro no longer will call brothers. Sisters will no longer call sisters. Gatherings are less than they used to be because of disunity and fracture that started with rumor. No wonder this passage says, don't you need to be reminded? Are you not mindful of the fact we are, verse 25, members one of another. This is essential as it is for the physical body to communicate correctly with one another in order for your physical body to move forward the way God intended it. You need every part of the body being truthful with the last part of its body. You want your church to grow? Be truthful. You want to divide your truth, church? Tolerate untruth. But warning number two, don't tolerate uncontrolled anger. Again, in this passage, Paul continues to flash out a warning light. And this time he comes to verse 26 and he says this, Be ye angry and sin not, and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. 
And Paul will actually circle back to this again in verse 31 when he gives expressions of what this would look like. He says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. I think if Paul had to repeat himself in a short period of time, this obviously must have been a problem in Ephesus. This was a great church, but Paul was not just writing stuff down on pages hoping that eventually they needed to hear it. I think he was addressing a very real issue. And he says, in this church, in this church of Ephesus, there's an anger problem. And he says, there's three things you need to get rid of. There's wrath. Well, wrath, what is that? Well, the word Paul uses here is an expression of a tumultuous outburst. It's sometimes translated as rage. It's derived from a word meaning to boil. It's used to describe people in the synagogue of Nazareth whose rage at Jesus drove them to the point where they wanted to throw him off a cliff in Luke chapter 4. It's used of the mob in Ephesus that led a riot against the Christians in Acts chapter 19. It's the very same word. You need to get rid of that kind of wrath. You need to get rid of anger. This word is used in verse 26 and again in verse 31. It's used of Jesus' righteous anger in Mark 3 verse 5. It's used of God's wrath, which is a settled hatred and opposition of all sin. With reference to human anger, honestly, wrath and anger are largely synonymous. If there is any nuance to find, wrath is a sudden burst of anger, an, a temper, whereas anger refers to a more settled attitude that just lets it boil for a little bit. Get rid of that. Get rid of clamor. This refers to a, a loud, angry word which people are screaming at each other. It includes cursing and calling people abusive names. Now, there is still a place for righteous anger. We see a reminder of that in verse 26 when he says, Be ye angry and sin not. Of course, there's a place for righteous anger. But let's be honest for a moment. If we were to do an accounting of all of our righteous anger, how much of it was actually righteous I think more honestness, we'd have to say, we're probably more unrighteous than we were righteous. Leonard Holt stands out as a classic example in my files of someone who had a problem with this. Leonard Holt was a middle-aged guy working in a Pennsylvania paper mill. Leonard was a fine, upstanding member of the community. He worked there for 19 years in that paper mill. He was a member of the local fire brigade. He taught the Boy Scout. He was indeed their favorite leader by all accounts. He was an affectionate father, a regular churchgoer, and even a Sunday school teacher. Everybody knew Leonard Holt as a kind, upstanding member of the society. That was until one day he showed up to his paper mill that he'd been working in for 19 years with a 45 automatic and a Smith & Wesson 38 in his hands. And he filled several of his fellow workmen with two and three bullets apiece, firing more than 30 seconds in all, deliberately killing the men with whom he had working side by side for many of those years. When a posse was formed to capture Leonard Holt, they found him standing in the doorway, snarling defiantly and saying, come and get me, you, and he used some choice words. I'm not taking any more of your, and he used some more choice words. Total bewilderment swept, swept over the neighborhood. They had known Leonard, but they didn't know this Leonard. Puzzled policemen and friends finally discovered a tenacious chain of logic behind his brief reign of terror. Down deep within the heart and soul of Leonard Holt rumbled intense resentment. The man who had appeared like a monk on the outside was seething on the inside. 
as a result of some people not even wanting to take a commute with him and car ride with him to work, as a result of other people who had been promoted ahead of him at the workplace, he just couldn't put up with it anymore. Another instance was a tree had fallen down and there was an argument with his neighbor over who was supposed to trim up the tree. It was, it was such a shock that Time Magazine actually took up the story and they printed his cover on the front of Time Magazine with a caption below it, and the caption read this, responsible, respectful, and resentful. So it is with resent. Allowed to fester through neglect, the toxic fumes of hatred foam to boil a steam room in your soul until you explode. And the damage of that explosion is always tragic, often irreparable. A battered child, a crime of passion, ugly caustic words that destroy a friendship, the loss of a job, domestic disharmony, even abuse, and the ruined testimony of our Lord. None of this is new. Solomon described the problem long ago when he put it this way, burning lips and a wicked heart are like a potsherd covered with silver dross. He that hateth disassembleth them with his lips and layeth up deceit within him. When he speaketh fair, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart whose hatred is covered by deceit. His wickedness shall be showed before the whole congregation. The answer to resentment is complica- isn't complicated, it's just painful. You want to make sure you don't destroy your church? This requires honesty. You must be the first to admit that you've got a problem. It requires humility. You must confess it before the one who died for such sins. It requires vulnerability, a willingness to keep that tendency submissive to God's regular reproof and be genuinely teachable. Petty words may hide a wicked heart, but they will not be able to withstand the tide that washes over the usefulness and now the uselessness of a church that allows uncontrolled anger to permeate its congregation. You want to destroy a church? Tolerate untruth. You want to destroy a church? Tolerate uncontrolled anger. You want to destroy a church? Tolerate an unchanged lifestyle. There are those in the church who are satisfied, sad to say, with externalism. And that's what Paul wrote about in verse 28 when he said, let him that steal, steal no more. In other words, there were those whose lives before salvation were marked by the fact that they had a problem with dishonesty and theft. The docks of Ephesus were notorious places for losing your wallet, and many of those wallet pickers were now members of the church. And so Paul says, if that was part of your lifestyle before, don't let that be a part of your lifestyle anymore. Once you come to Christ, there should not be the same part of who you are. And Paul says it shouldn't typify the lifestyle of a redeemed person that they come to Christ and they remain unchanged. They're the same as they were before. So he says in verse 17, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth Walk not as other Gentiles. You aren't supposed to walk like that. But now that you have learned Christ, you know a different way of doing things. Verse 20, you have not so learned Christ. 
This is not a challenge to us. Of course it is. If I'm going to grow, I need to, well, grow. People say style is irrelevant and style does not change. I always say get real, get married. That's how you know that style gets changed, right? And your wife can tell you that, I mean, I had clothes that I still wore from junior high that I brought into our marriage, and my wife very sweetly said, that's not something you should still wear. I actually appreciate that, right? Uh, Style does change, actually. Uh, For those men in the room, uh, you just need to make sure you are aware of that. Style, Style does grow and change over time. Even if that's your favorite shirt, it may not still work for you anymore. Just want to help anybody out in the room that's still wearing that favorite shirt. Even so, there is an old style and there is a new style. There is the old you and there should be the new you. Verse 22, put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts. You don't wear that anymore. And be renewed, put on this in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, I know the dramatic stories of churches that have fallen from usefulness. And maybe you do too. Dramatic, sad stories of churches who fell from usefulness because of gross immorality. Or the gross pilfering of funds or major ethical breaches. And you hear those stories because they're juicy. But there are far more stories of churches whose potential was just as ruined because they just refused to change. They wouldn't grow. They got to the point where they actually believed the lies of the devil and thought, you know, I'm actually okay where I'm at. I've learned enough. I've heard that story before. You want to destroy your potential? Tolerate untruth. Tolerate uncontrolled anger. Tolerate an unchanged life. Tolerate unwholesome speech. Our very conversation must be guarded. We must bury the fellowship and potential usefulness of a local church by our tongues. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. It's not good enough to just say, oops, it just came out. No, it didn't just become an oops. You meant it. You you, you let it out. And in most cases, you thought about it before you said it. After all, is this not exactly what our Lord said? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, for those of you like me who grew up in church, you may not get this in first reading. I've never been in hell's angels. I've never sailed on the seven seas. I've never been on the battlefield. And my conversation isn't colored with some of those words. I didn't grow up in that setting. But do you think that a person, when a person comes out of that lifestyle and crosses by God's immediate work of generation, that as soon as they get saved, all of that lingo just erased from their mind immediately? Is that what you thought happened? And that's why we need to be gracious with people as they come to grow to Christ, but we don't just replace expletives with Christianese. You don't just say, well, don't say whatever. Instead, say hallelujah. That's a better word. Or, or, or don't say, you know, fill it in. I don't think we should continue down that path. And we treat this almost as though we need a Christian replacement for naughty words. That's a bad mindset when it comes to this verse. Paul exhorts them to work on the whole manner of their conversation, not just their choice words. He says that the, the very way you talk 
And not just the way you talk, not just the word you use, but what you choose to talk about should change. Verse 29, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. In other words, these aren't just pithy statements, right? Just don't say the bad word, replace it with hallelujah. No, these are deep, theologically sound, encouraging conversations. And so the reality is that it is just as wrong to use colorful language in the church as it is to just come to church and talk about how's the weather. That's still the same problem. Do you see it? Paul says if you can't change the conversation you have in the church and have that conversation be deeply rooted about the things of God's word, you still don't understand what I'm talking about. I want the conversations in the church to flow from God's Word. Don't just memorize a good Christian dictionary. Look to God's Word as the lingo for your conversation. And what we begin to think about is what we'll begin to talk about. And that's why we must be careful about what we put into our minds. Is this not what Philippians 4 put? Brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on those things. Because if you think on those things, that's what you're going to talk about. When's the last time you came to church and thought, before I go home today, I want to pause for a few minutes and just talk to another brother and sister in Christ about God and his word and what he's teaching me. And not just come to church and sit and listen to someone else talk to me, but actually come in and talk to someone else. You want to destroy a church's potential? You want to destroy a church's potential? You will destroy a church's potential by unguarded conversations. And warning number five, don't tolerate an unforgiving spirit. Forgiveness is a hallmark of our faith, and it should be of the church as well. And so he says, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And for many of us, the hardest words to say are, I forgive you. And we all recognize that there are challenges involved in forgiveness, but we have to make it a reflex reaction. Let's cut through the nonsense and acknowledge that as long as we are going to live in proximity with one another, we will push one another's buttons. That's just true. We will be offensive to one another. We will be disappointing to one another. We will discourage one another. We will let one another down. We are family. And that's not always fun, is it? (laughs) But that's what it's like to be brothers and sisters. And so the only way you can determine to continue to be part of a one another assembly is to learn to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving one another. Why? Well, because forgiven people forgive people. That's what he says there. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. God forgave freely. There were no strings attached. God forgave generously. God forgave wholeheartedly. God forgave eagerly. Bitterness and an unforgiving spirit go hand in hand. And when I live with bitterness and a spirit of resentment that refuses to forgive, it is a self-afflicted torture that actually begins to affect the very foundations of the church itself. 
It would be strange if, it would be a strange group if some of us here were not at some point in our lives having a struggle with someone else. It would be a strange group. Maybe you just have a very small friend group, or you're just a monk living somewhere else. The reality is that the more you know people, the more people hurt you. You think you, and if that is not part of your life, you're either in the nursery at this point, or you've never met anybody. You just never worked with anybody your entire life. And yet we come to church and we say, well, I mean, how many times have we heard this? I'm not going to go to church anymore because everybody there is a hypocrite. My former pastor, Pastor Erwood, used to define hypocrites this way. You know what a hypocrite is? Everybody sometimes. That's what a hypocrite is. That's how he would define a hypocrite. And if you're going to leave a church because someone hurt you, then you didn't understand that people, sinners, come to church. That's, that's the reality. And if you, if you want to grow to become part of a healthy church, it may take you learning some words. I forgive you. How many times does Paul have to talk about that even in his, own word, in his own letters when he talks about love thinks no evil and this verse, be tenderhearted and kind and forgiving one to another and on and on. Tonight my role has really just been more of like a lighthouse worker. And I'm not the source of the light. All I've done is turn the light on. And I recognize that as we shine the light, we, we are shining the light just from Ephesians chapter 5. And there may be more than just this that would destroy a church, but certainly in Ephesians 4, we see these five. You want to destroy a church's potential? Number one, don't tolerate untruthful speech. Number two, don't tolerate uncontrolled anger. Number three, don't tolerate an unchanged lifestyle. Number four, don't tolerate unwholesome speech. And number five, don't tolerate an unforgiving spirit. And I would invite you to do a personal inventory. Where is the warning light flashing in your light? Don't give the devil a foothold. As we mentioned last time we were together, Christianity was not meant to be a lone ranger sport. And so as you come together, you're going to gather together with believers. You should want that. And so there should be an honest assessment. If I'm going to be used of God in a local body to build that body up, I want God to shine the light in my life. Do I have any of these shining out? Don't give the debtful a foothold in this church by allowing him to be the foothold in your life. Because church history is literally littered with examples of churches that eventually amounted to very little for God, despite the fact that they were at one time marked by great potential, significant giftedness, a clear delineation of purpose, a zealous desire to do their best. You better destroy these pitfalls, or these pitfalls will destroy your church. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.